0: Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us this morning uh, to step back from our study in the gospel of John, as it were, to see the forest for the trees, the the forest of the God-man Jesus Christ. And as we handle a lot of Bible this morning, I pray that we would begin to see a beautiful tapestry woven that will serve us well this season by God's grace. But that only happens if you come now. So I do invite you to come, Holy Spirit, and uh, move us. Would you convict us? Would you help us to understand? Would you grant us the gift of illumination? Would you give us encouragement where we need to be encouraged? Would you uh, rebuke us where we are rebellious and wayward? And at the end of it all, in the middle of it all, would you show us the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for such sinners as us? In his name we pray, amen. Well, it's December 1st. It's also the first of four Advent Sundays, and that means for us in the life of our church, A fresh preaching series that will help us, Lord willing, to prepare for the celebration of the birth of our Lord together Christmas Eve, Tuesday, December 4th. I think 4 p.m. is when we meet, if I have that right. If you wonder what happened to the gospel according to John, it's still there. And we will, Lord willing, pick up John right where we left off just after Christmas. But until then, our focus is a series entitled The Chiefest Among Ten Thousand, an Advent Study of the Incarnation of Jesus Christ. There are preaching calendars available on the table in Fellowship Hall. If you haven't taken one, I would invite you to take one. Not now, but as you leave today to pray for this preaching ministry. Um, We need that help. Remember, in your prayers, the preaching ministry of this church, the calendar could serve you for those purposes. Next week, our focus is what the Bible says about the deity of Christ. In two weeks, we'll look at the incarnation of Christ. In three weeks, a really interesting topic the relationship between Christ and the Holy Spirit throughout the Gospels. And then on Christmas Eve, December 24th, as I mentioned, we'll hear the Christmas story uh, with a focus particularly on the virgin birth that evening. This week, though, we begin with a topic that, while it is readily confessed by most of us, is probably not well understood by the majority of us. Today's topic is frequently assumed among church people. It's, it's given information. We take it for granted, by and large, that Jesus Christ is fully man. A part of the reason we take it for granted is that no one appears to be right now in the culture defying this truth of the Bible. And the operative words are appears to be and at this moment. Because um, I think we're only going to see that it just seems this way. If you press into the biblical teaching of the full humanity of Jesus, there are subtle manifestations of doubt even in the church even in this church. Author Stephen Nichols writes, even today, the view that Jesus was not fully man manages to find mild expression in the tendency to view Jesus as sort of floating six inches off the ground as he walked upon the earth. I think that's true. We don't tend to highlight as much our Lord's limitations and his weaknesses moreover just because it's not popular to deny this teaching today doesn't mean it won't become popular in the days ahead to deny it if living in 21st century America has taught me anything it has taught me not to be surprised at anything To take a page from the wisdom of our Puritan forebearers, in calm weather, mend your sails. Which means, in part, let's seek to create consensus now while we have it. Let's examine what the Bible says when there is no controversy afoot right now. Let's define our terms. Let's take stock of our assets. What do we all believe about? the humanity of Jesus, because there could easily come a day in the not-too-far-distant future when we are tempted to deny this, like they were tempted to deny it in the first century. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This was a teaching that was on the ropes in the first century. People were denying it left and right. It was a heresy called docetism. We are a part of a a movement, happily a part of a movement known as the Evangelical Free Church of America. And as a part of that movement, we embrace a 10-point statement of faith that seeks to keep us faithful to the teaching of the Bible in a systematic presentation of Christian doctrine. In Article 4 of the EFCA Statement of Faith, as you see it on your outline, reads in part, we believe that Jesus Christ is... Is fully man. We believe that Jesus Christ is fully man. Is this doctrine really being questioned today? Well, not blatantly, not with hostility or even much forethought, but you might be surprised. I have three points for us Uh, two are more doctrinal in nature, and the last one is quite practical in nature. What we're going to learn is that doctrine is practical and our practice is unavoidably doctrinal. We believe that Jesus Christ is fully man. Okay, but what does that mean? Let's begin with point 1. Jesus Christ is a real man. Jesus Christ is a real man. The doctrine of the full humanity of Jesus Christ begins with this affirmation. He is a real human being. He's a real man. An actual, physical, material, factual, tangible man. And if we could table our discussion of the virgin birth for a moment, because that's all we're going to do on on Christmas Eve is talk about the virgin birth. Uh, Let's just focus in on this. Jesus was born... Scholars debate the exact time, and they will, until he returns. I think that's neither here nor there. It's either 6th or 4th year B.C., before this common era. But the fact of his birth is not doubted by any reputable scholars, anyway. In chapter 1, verse 18 of his gospel, Matthew speaks of the birth of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 20 of Matthew's gospel, the angel says that Jesus was conceived in her. Jesus underwent conception. In Matthew 1, 25, it says of Mary, she had given birth to a son. Now, when we turn to Luke's gospel, Luke actually does a fascinating thing. He tracks the progression of the growth of Jesus as a human being. With three different words. Listen to this. In Luke 2.16, Jesus is, according to Luke, the baby lying in a manger. He's a baby. In Luke 2.40, he says of Jesus, the child grew and became strong. Different word. In Luke 2.43, he calls him the boy Jesus. Once again, to talk about growth. This is Luke's way of referring to Christ at the age of 12. The boy Jesus. So, whatever you personally may conclude about the divinity of Jesus, please don't make the mistake of minimizing his humanity. Jesus Christ is real. Luke 2.52 says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. I just want to fish out the word stature there. It means years. It means that Jesus Physically aged as a person he was conceived born, lived as a baby a child, a boy and then he grew into a man he grew into a man who knew and experienced all the weaknesses and limitations that accompany being a human being he was a real man so John chapter 4, verse 6 says that as he passed through Samaria, he stopped at Jacob's well. And John 4, 6 is explicit as to the reason. John says, wearied as he was from his journey, he got tired. Matthew chapter 4, we have the account of the temptation of Jesus in the desert. Matthew 4, 2 says that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Fast forward to the end of his life, three years later, Jesus is hanging on a cross in John chapter 19, verse 28, and we have the namesake of this sermon. Jesus says, I thirst. And let's not forget that the scriptures bear witness that he actually died. It's part of being a human being. Luke 23, 46 says, he breathed. His last. Jesus expired. Now, after his resurrection, we encounter a Jesus every bit as real as the one before his death. In Luke 24, verse 40, uh, 24, verse 39, he presents himself to his disciples, his doubting disciples to some degree. It's wonderful. He says, See my hands and feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. The Spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And that's just His physical nature. There's more to being a human being than just having a body. Uh, consider for a moment His thought life. Jesus had a human mind. This is abundantly clear in the New Testament. Take Hebrews 5.8, for example. Hebrews 5.8 says, He was a son, and He learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned what? Obedience. Jesus learned obedience. Jesus Christ learned things as he grew up. Hebrews 5.8 only affirms what we already looked at in Luke 2.52. Jesus increased in wisdom. Jesus' mind is so human so subject to weakness and limitations that he even once confessed something that he did not know. You remember? Speaking of the time of his return to this earth, his second advent, Jesus says in Mark 13, 32, but concerning that day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And that's just his mind. Consider The emotional life of our Lord for just a moment. John 12, 27, he considers the prospect of his death on the cross and he says, My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus was genuinely troubled. As any human being would be at the prospect of dying on the cross. When Jesus' friend Lazarus died, the Bible is completely clear in John 11:35 that Jesus wept. It's the shortest and maybe it's the most poignant verse in the entire Bible. John 11:35 Jesus wept. Now, I wrote it down wrong in your outline, so you'll have to change it if you're following down lockstep here. But Matthew chapter 9 should say Matthew 9.36, not 9.6. Matthew 9.36, which reads, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The emotional life of our Lord is real. He felt compassion. His stomach churned. Now, he didn't just feel compassion. Sometimes he felt indignation. His tone, at times, could be severe and strict. Jesus could be firm and demanding. After he heals the two blind men in Matthew 9.30, it says, Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. He sternly warns them. Jesus could be unyielding. He could be austere and rigid. He even got livid on occasion. The money changers in the temple comes to mind. We saw that passage several weeks ago. He was mad. When he locked horns with the Pharisees, his blood was boiling at times. But he also knew love. One of my favorite verses in the Gospels is Mark 10.21. I love Mark 10.21. He responds to the rich young man, and Mark says it this way. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing, right? Sell all you have and so on. He loved him. Other texts like Luke 10.21 bear witness to the joy that Jesus knew and exhibited. Luke 10.21, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He was a real man. The summary statement of all this evidence is that people around Jesus only saw him frequently as a man. In fact, the very reality that he claimed equality with the Father and they understood him to be claiming equality with the Father, assumes that they believed he was human in the first place. Consider the way that Matthew describes the situation in in Matthew 13, 54 and 56, where he explains the reaction of Jesus' hometown crowd to his teaching and miracles. Listen to this. Here's what they say. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? This man. Finally, the legendary pronouncement of Pontius Pilate about Jesus in John 19, 5 is a fitting summary of all these texts. John 19, 5, Pilate proclaims, Behold the man. The man. That's what, Je- that's what Pilate saw when he looked at Jesus. A man. Fully man. And that means that Jesus Christ is a real man. Second point today. Jesus Christ is a perfect man. Jesus Christ is a perfect man. Now I am just the right generation to remember a band from the 1980s called the Human League. There are just a few in the room that would know about the Human League. They were a British new wave band, formed the year I was born, 1977. It was not until 1986 that they had their first number one hit, a song entitled Human. The song, incidentally, was written and produced by the Twin Cities' own Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, one of whom used to live that way. Now, whether or not you remember the song is not important, but I want you to hear the chorus because it reflects a theology that is alive and well in our culture. And truth be told, is pulsing through the church today. I hear it weekly from people. I'm only human, of flesh and blood, I'm made human. Born to make mistakes. Really. I'm only human. Of flesh and blood I'm made. Okay, good theology. Second part. Human. Born to make mistakes. I hope you see that that chorus is not merely a trip down amnesia lane to wake you up during a sermon. Rather, I sing the chorus to wake you up to the fact that popular culture assumes that to be human is to make mistakes, and I don't think it's much different in the evangelical church either. We hear it all the time, to err is wrong, not true. You know who said that? Alexander Pope. British poet, 18th century, not the Bible. To err is human? Well, it's poor theology, and it's absolutely rotten Christology. We believe that Jesus Christ is fully man, and that means he's a real man. And furthermore, that means he is a perfect man. Author Fred Zaspel put it this way, Although sin is common to all humanity, it's not essential to true humanity. Jesus stands as the exception. True man he is, but sinful man, he is not. I'm going to write that again. I'm to say it again, because I see some of you writing it down. This is so good. Although sin is common to all humanity, it's not essential to true humanity. Jesus stands as the exception. True man he is, but sinful man he is not. Fred Zaspel said that three years ago. The Bible unambiguously teaches the complete and utter sinlessness of Jesus Christ. But here's what we need to understand. The Bible never teaches that with reference to his divinity, his deity. No way. The Bible always, every time it mentions the sinlessness of Jesus, links it up with his humanity. Every time. Let us be clear, the Bible teaches with great clarity that Jesus is sinless. But every time it does so, it's with reference to his humanity. So is to err human? Not when you're fully human. The text along these lines are many. Here's a sampling. John eight forty six. Jesus says to the Jews who had strong suspicions of him, which of you convicts me of sin? And you could have heard crickets chirping. And if you were there, a tumbleweed would have drifted by because nobody answered him because they couldn't point to a single sin. John 15.10, speaking to his disciples in the upper room, Jesus says to them something that not a single human being other than Jesus could say. Matthew 15.10, he says, I have kept my Father's commandments. That verse trips off our tongues all too quickly. Can you even imagine a person claiming that today? He's talking about how he measured up to the directives and orders of Almighty God. I have kept my Father's commandments. (laughs) When he's standing before Pontius Pilate, again, John 18, 38, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Which is interesting, and he says it again six verses later, John nineteen four. I find no guilt in him. This is the same Pilate who said in John nineteen five that Jesus is a real man. Behold the man. Realized what Pilate knew about Jesus as he delivered him to the crowd. This is a man, and he has no guilt. At least with reference to these trumped up charges, this is a guiltless man. Now, those are the snapshots of his life, but consider then the mature reflection of the rest of the New Testament authors as they speak of the perfection of Jesus. In Acts 13, uh, sorry, Acts 3.14, in a sermon, Peter calls Jesus the holy and righteous one. At Romans 8.3, Paul says that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, a fascinating statement. That he said it that way. We already know that Paul and the rest of the New Testament authors teach the flesh and blood reality of Jesus. So when Paul says that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he's saying that Jesus' flesh wasn't actually sinful, his nature wasn't sinful. It was human, it wasn't sinful. That's no more clear than in a text like 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who knew no sin was made to be sin. Only a sinless man could become the sin bearer for all men and women. Only a sinless man could do that in the sacrifice of atonement. And then we have uh, the epistles, uh, Hebrews, 1 Peter, 1 John. Captured in these letters is the most blatant and clear statements of the sinlessness of Jesus in the entire New Testament. Uh, Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was, in every respect, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7.26 only ratchets up the language as the author says of the man, Jesus, that he was wholly innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Um, Peter, 1 Peter 1.19, Peter refers to Jesus as a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 2.22 says it straight out. He committed no sin. Finally, uh, 1 John 3.5, the apostle John reminds us, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So, Jesus Christ is only human? No, he's not. He's fully human. You ever use the phrase, nobody's perfect? Jack Lemon said it in the final line to some like it hot nobody's perfect. Well, unless you're willing to footnote that profoundly with accept Jesus, I just would recommend you expunge that from your vocabulary. Otherwise, we lie. To err is not human, to err is to commit sin. Jesus never committed sin. Jesus Christ is a perfect man. So, what does all this mean? That's the doctrine portion. What's the practice? This is news we can use, I guarantee it. And given the time that we have left, I will outline these five applications and start the discussion. We do need to do some application. The so five reasons why the full humanity of Christ matters for us today. Number 1. Jesus Christ is fully man to live in our place. Jesus Christ is fully man to live in our place. In a dramatic comparison and contrast of the first Adam with the second Adam. Romans five eighteen to 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus had to be made human. To live in our place. To live our life. A life of utter obedience to every single one of the commands of God that every single one of us has broken multiple times. Jesus is the second Adam. And the second Adam perfectly obeyed where the first Adam cosmically failed. And we do too. Jesus Christ is fully man, and he was fully man first to live in our place. Second application, Jesus Christ is fully man to die in our place. Jesus Christ is fully man to die in our place. Again, it's the book of Hebrews that wonderfully connects the dots for us here in a practical way. Speaking of Jesus, Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Human beings are the ones who sinned, and only a human being is fit to bear the penalty for that sin. Now, notice Jesus Christ is a perfect man, he knew no sin. But on the cross, he became sin for us. Jesus became an idolater. He became a pornographer. Jesus became a drunk. He became a homosexual. He became a thief, a murderer, a gossip, a hater of God. On the cross, Jesus became foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, ruthless. He became sin. He was punished for our sin because he loves us. He bore our curse. He paid our debt. He absorbed the righteous wrath of his Father so that none of us, none of us, have to bear it. Jesus is fully man to die in our place. Third, Jesus Christ is fully man to show us To God. Jesus Christ is fully man to show us to God. 1 Timothy 2 5 teaches that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Why did Paul say it that way? One mediator, the man. Because only a man could possibly be a mediator between God and men. Only a man. A mediator represents two parties actively engaged in a conflict. The mediator shows each one the interests of the other. And one half of Jesus' work as a mediator, this is awesome, don't miss this, is to show a full, real, perfected humanity to his Father. That's awesome, old-fashioned awesome, that valley girl awesome, full of awe. 113 years ago, B.B. Warfield wrote of this mediator, the pattern, the ideal, the realization of man, this is how men ought to grow up. How were men not sinners? Men would grow up. We speak of the faith of Abraham, the meekness of Moses, the boldness of Elijah, the love of John, but the perfection of Jesus defies characterization. If you would know what man is in the height of his divine idea, look at Jesus Christ. Do you know this mediator? That's the gospel, friends. Do you know this mediator? You need one, you need this man. You need this mediator standing between you and a holy God. You need a mediator and no one, not Abraham, not Moses, not Muhammad or Buddha or Joseph Smith or for that matter Oprah or Taylor Swift or Paul Ryan or Marco Rubio or Chris Christie. None of them is a sufficient mediator. None of them. They all need a mediator. And Jesus is willing to stand as that mediator to offer his full manhood and his full perfection for every person who would ever turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus. Come to Jesus today. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is fully man to show us to God. Fourth, Jesus Christ is fully man to show true humanity to us. Jesus Christ is fully man to show true humanity to us. This is where we need to remember the awful theology of the human league here. I'm only human, born to make mistakes. Okay. If you're talking about original sin, inherited sin, uh, total depravity, sure. The Bible teaches that, absolutely. Born to sin in that sense. But that's not what this song means. And that's not what most of us mean when we talk in those categories. We use it as an excuse for sin. And we need to raise our eyes all the way up to Jesus. Do you know why Jesus Christ became a man? It's out there on our sign right now. Irenaeus, about 1,700 years ago, said, Jesus Christ, in his infinite love, became what we are. In order to make us entirely what he is. That's the full gospel. Jesus Christ in his infinite love became what we are, in order to make us entirely what he is. That's true. Jesus Christ became a man to make us who he is. Plenty of New Testament texts teach this: Romans 8:29, 1 Corinthians 15:49, Hebrews 12, 1 to 5, 1 Peter 2, 21. 1 John 2.6, 1 John 3, 1 to 3. But my favorite text, and the only one I'm going to quote along these lines, is 2 Corinthians 3.18. Speaking of what it means to behold Jesus as a believer. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory. To another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's an amazing thing. Here's a phrase to file away. What you behold, you become. What you behold, you become. That's how life works. TV, money, Facebook, your pets, your kids, even your spouse. If you make idols of them, Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8 says, you will become like them. You get pressed right into their mold. But, what you behold, you become. And that means that if you stare into the face of the man Jesus Christ for a lifetime, you will, incrementally, slowly, bit by bit, from one degree of glory to another, be transformed into that same image. What you behold, you become. That's why Robert Murray McShane said to his friend For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Jesus Christ is fully man to show true humanity to us. Final application, and we're done. Jesus Christ is fully man to sympathize with us. Jesus Christ is fully man to sympathize with us. Uh, The book of Hebrews reveals this at such a profound level. You ever wonder if there's anyone out there who gets you, who gets your suffering, who knows where you've been? No one does except Jesus. He knows. He knows. Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15, We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and and find help in the time of need. Finally, Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Hmm. Jesus Christ is fully man to sympathize with us. So we believe that Jesus Christ is fully man. And that me- means that we believe Jesus is a real man and he's a perfect man. Jesus Christ is fully man to live in our place and die in our place and show us to God and shro- show true humanity to us and to sympathize with us. Next week, we'll pick up our Advent study with a look at the other side what the Bible teaches just as much with as much force the deity of Christ a sermon entitled My Lord and My God But right now let's pray Lord Jesus to whom would we go you have the words of eternal life I pray on the one hand Lord Jesus that We would never, ever think of you that you don't know where we've been or what we've done. And in the middle of that, that you don't sympathize and empathize profoundly and provide atonement for all of our sins and redemption for all of our sufferings that are unjust. All of it. When things don't go the way they should, you always make them turn for good. And yet, too... I pray that as a church we would never make our humanity an excuse for our sin. It was no excuse for you. It's one of the most profound miracles in the Bible that you never sinned and you were fully human. So may we see the author and finisher of our faith this morning and lay aside every sin that so easily besets For there is pardon at this cross. There is power through the empty tomb and the indwelling spirit. And there is a whole ocean of people out there drowning, needing our help, overwhelmed with their sufferings and sins. Oh, Jesus, that we could be the means of bringing life to people this Advent season with this great gospel. We believe that Jesus Christ is fully man.